I'm your host, Salvatore Bobonis, and joining me today is economist Judith Sloan, veteran company director and contributing editor at The Australian. Judith will be talking to us today about how we can repair the economic damage that has been done by the coronavirus and what kinds of strategies the government should pursue to get us out of this mess. Uh, let, let me ask you, let me start with one of your columns, since you are, you know, maybe Australia's best known, well, not maybe, certainly Australia's best known economics commentator. Last month in The Australian, you wrote, and I'm going to quote you here, no one ever likes to be have their own words thrown back at them, least, at all, least of all an economist. But you wrote, quote, the idea that restrictions could be lifted and the economy quickly recover is fanciful. Now, that was a month ago. Where are you today? Um, look, I, th I, th I think I'd probably give a much more nuanced response. I think, um, let me just go backwards a bit. Sure. I think Australia's record on this is that we have handled the pandemic extremely well, uh, but we have done so at reasonably high economic cost. Um, reasonably, or reasonably or unreasonably high economic well, costs? No, I'm going to say, so New Zealand... They've managed the pandemic well, but at excessive economic cost, right? So I, 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 it's very hard to tell, I think, whether the, uh, uh, the trade-off, and there has been a trade-off, between those economic costs and the management of the pandemic has been right. And, I mean, I think, um, you know, as I've mentioned to you, Salvatore, there's been a kind of civil war breakout in the economics profession, basically, who um, I think even acknowledging that the politicians have been making decisions under conditions of extreme uncertainty. Uh, on the one hand, there are a group, quite a big group of economists who think the government has got the balance right. But then there is another group of economists who think that the government overreacted and has imposed excessive economic costs. And, and it's got quite bitter. It's, it's you know, a little ad hominem and ad feminum, to tell you the truth. <laughs> um, Can you tell us about some of the ad feminines? We, we, we all like the gossip. <laughs> well, you know, I'm a person of uh, very thick skin, so I don't really care. But, you know... Uh, I have probably been in the first camp, which has has assessed that the government has... I'm not saying the details of the restrictions have always been right, uh, and I think some of them have not been evidence-based, but I think on balance the government has got it right. Um, and I have been personally attacked for that position. Um, really? Yeah, but, you know... Do we care? I just think open debate is so important in the current environment. Um, and let's not overlook the fact that the economic costs are extremely substantial, right. and which is why I think we need to shift the debate to where do we go from here? Because my concern is that in some ways I think we're in a sort of period of a phony war. There are so many government props within the system that it's sort of disguising the real damage. So, you know, for example, one can see quite a lot of businesses not coming back, right? But we don't know that for sure at the moment. So I personally feel that Australia should give itself a tick, but the challenge and the really significant challenge is how we, how we proceed from now 
and how can we get the economy working in a way that takes up those workers who've lost their jobs and actually then some more. Right. Now I'm going to give a quick shout out. Phil, Sam, Michael, Neil, Rosling, Gay, Mike. Thanks for watching and thanks for interacting. Uh, I'd like to ask you, Judith, about New Zealand. So you mentioned New Zealand having uh, you know, gone much farther than us here in Australia. I'm not that familiar with the differences. Could, can you lay out some of like what are they missing out on that we've been able to do for the last few months? Well, so there's uh, what they call stage three and stage four restrictions. So Australia never went beyond stage three. New okay. Zealand went to stage four. So basically that involved everything we had, including, I think, very importantly, um, closing the borders and imposing quarantine restrictions on incoming um, citizens, by and large they were. But they wouldn't allow takeout food. They closed down construction. They closed down manufacturing. So it was complete bare-bones stuff. It was really just the complete essentials. Now, we didn't go right. as far as that. So, And I think the preliminary, and bear in mind, this kind of slightly annoys me. There's all this sort of jump to conclusion about inter-country comparisons, but let right. me do that. Uh, and it doesn't look as though the payoff in terms of the pandemic management has been any better in New Zealand compared with Australia. So... Um, at about, you know, they, they're now gone to stage three. So, you know, we'll have to see. Right. Now, Chris is pointing out that in New Zealand, they've done without coffee <laughs> for several weeks. <laughs> well, as, as you know, Salvatore, it is close to a human right, that daily cup of coffee. <laughs> um, and so, yes. No, I, I, I mean, I'm sure... Um, all those uh, online and you in, t in particular really have wanted evidence base uh, policy on this stuff. And, and some of the restrictions, even in Australia, you have to think have not been evidence based. And over time, I think that leads to, um, you know, defiance and non-compliance. And I mean, I go back to the point, I guess, that yes, it was probably right to uh, make public health decision-making the preeminent factor. But most people would understand that public health specialists and epidemiologists, they particularly don't think like economists. They don't actually understand the idea of costs. So they see the benefits in what they're proposing and either ignore or diminish the importance of costs. The only thing they do is perhaps think about the sustainability of their measures. So. We've definitely had a very big bias in terms of the influence on policy over the past, past well, a couple of months, I guess, now. Right. Now, we also have Simon and Elizabeth making comments down in the comments section. So thanks, everyone, for interacting. Uh, also, if you're down there you know, and you're online, be sure to click the subscribe button, become part of the channel, get updates for future videos. Uh, Judith, I, I'd like to follow up on something you said about you know how economists make trade-offs. Now, we know that when restrictions are lifted, somebody somewhere is, quote unquote, going to die because the restrictions were lifted. Now, I don't want to make light of that, uh, but that's just a, a statistical fact, right, that somebody somewhere is going to get coronavirus because restrictions are lifted. Is that a reason never to lift restrictions? Since obviously it's a trade off, right, between uh, economy and health. Yeah, and um, 
you know, nothing in life is riskless. Um, so it's a matter of basically, you know, risk adjusting those decision making. And the thing is, Australia's starting from a good point, right? Because we didn't have our health system overwhelmed. We've had relatively few deaths. And this is a point that I think may be kind of really important in the next few months is that we probably as a society haven't had our confidence shot in a way that some of those countries that have really been hit by this virus um, or parts of countries because, you know, their confidence is probably, I'm sure if you measured it, at historic lows. So I'm thinking here parts of the US, um, Northern Italy, Spain, France, and, and really the UK is looking like a bad case study too. So I think we have the advantage of <clears throat> starting from a good place, right. but, you know, we do have to be mature about it. And uh, I think the thing is that if there are cluster outbreaks, for example, we don't have to have measures which lock down the entire state or let alone country and deal with those in a kind of more particular way. But I'd like to push you on this trade-offs issue because, for example, we know, I mean, I'm not an economist, but even I know that once we lift restrictions, road deaths will rise because after all, people have been staying home, roads have been empty, well, not empty, but you know, much less full. And certainly there've been fewer car accidents. I don't have the data on it, but. I think we can agree that almost certainly road accidents will have been down over the last month. When we lift restrictions, there will be more road deaths. Uh, is that somehow different than coronavirus deaths? I mean, how do we balance these? Okay, so I think the answer is yes, it is different than coronavirus deaths because the thing we have, have to always understand about coronavirus is that this is an infectious disease from which none of us had any immunity. So it's not, and I kind of got frustrated with people saying, oh, people died of road accidents and cancer and other things. Uh, the parallels aren't quite there. <clears throat> but yes, you're right about the road deaths um, and the insurance companies actually have been doing very well because- you know, <laughs> Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yes. Well, because the claims had had of that. So much, and the premiums really weren't adjusted, but- um, we care a lot about road deaths, okay? So we do a lot to try and minimise road deaths. So we have a lot of road rules. We have restrictions on alcohol and drug consumption because we know, of course, you know, there is an externality there. People can kill other people, innocent people. Um, so I kind of think the road deaths um, parallel, yeah, w w people accept uh, risks. But a lot of government policy is actually based on trying to reduce those risks right. by imposing, you know, collectively responsible behaviour on, right. on drivers. Yeah. Now, yesterday, and I don't want to push this angle too much, but I have to ask you one more question about this, because yesterday a research team at my own university produced modelling saying that they expected suicides as a result of the coronavirus epidemic to result in more deaths than coronavirus. Now, I'm not an economist, but I am a statistician. And I can tell you there's some serious problems with their modeling that have to do with endogeneity. We're not going to try to discuss endogeneity on, <laughs> on a YouTube live stream. But do you have any thoughts about that? I mean, is this a legitimate, is this just academic point scoring or is this a legitimate sort of thing to be putting in front of the press? 
Well, look, I think what is legitimate is that we really need to be worried about the state of the economy and the state of the labour market. Okay. We know that, that long-term unemployment is an absolutely devastating right. uh, outcome for people. And what we also know is that if people have been unemployed for one or two years, they often will drop out and and, and the, the quality of their lives is rapidly diminished. I mean... To, the cynic in me tells me that the coronavirus has kind of been an opportunity for some of the interest groups around the place to be making various points. So, and I might class those predictions of suicide along them. You know, give we need more money for mental health because the coronavirus leads right. to more suicides. Now, now, that might sound as though I'm being uncaring. I'm not at all. Um, but I think the thing is we need to go back to what is the what would be the root cause of that. And that's why getting the economy back on a better footing and trying to make sure that more people, you know, people can go back to jobs and more people can get jobs right. must be a really, really high priority. So, so how do we get the economy back? Do we just have an announcement tomorrow that says reopen everyone? Or do you see, I mean... How I mean, I understand we can lift restrictions, but is that the same as getting the economy back? No, I don't think it is. And the thing we have to understand, so it's kind of worth going back to thinking, what did the Australian economy look like right. uh, before this happened, right? And that then sort of gives you some pointers as to where things will go, right? So the Australian economy was an economy that was dominated by services, and of course services have been particularly hit, but it was helped very much by strong trade performance, right? But the thing is about the trade performance is that you've got to think about it in two parts. There's trade in goods and services, so particularly commodities. Um, they haven't been hit so hard, but they probably will take a bit of a pounding as the weakness in the world economy has its impact. But then we had um, trade in services which was associated with movement of people. So there I'm thinking particularly international students and international tourists. Now, um, I mean, my guess is that the restrictions on the international movement of people will be the last thing to be lifted, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you're thinking of where are the headwinds, it really is in that sphere for the Australian economy because it's hard to see uh, levels of international tourism and international students get back to where they were particularly quickly. Okay. Now, uh, we have our, our viewers are chomping at the bit to get their questions in, but I'm going to ask mine first. <laughs> many, you know, many of Australia's top universities have taken a hit from this crisis. And the reason I'm asking this question is none more so than mine at the University of Sydney, where, uh, you know, 20,000 Chinese students, well, of those 20,000, you know, 15,000 didn't materialize and we're down a half billion dollars. Um, what do you think has to change at universities? I mean, if one institution in Australia is going to change as, as a result of this crisis, it has to be universities. But how? how? How should they be changing? Look, I think it could be quite painful. Um, but my argument is this. Universities essentially have been engaged in three activities. The first is provision of, of education for domestic students. Secondly, provision of education for international students. And finally, re research. 
And really what's happened over the past decade or so is that the first one has been squeezed, right? Because universities have um, uh, run after the high margin international students. And then there's been this, uh, you know, uh, cross-subsidisation of research, this gaming of the rankings in order to get more international students. Um, now, I mean, I'm sure you've read all the rent-seeking pieces from, you know, your Vice-Chancellor, but also other university administrators and the like. And they just refuse to acknowledge that the quality of the offering to domestic students has deteriorated. So, I mean, I see a silver lining to this cloud. And I mean, we just need to focus more on it, uh, on the domestic students and accept that, that really um, international students should form a, a smaller proportion of um, of the overall student load. Right. So and it will be yeah. an outcome. And I might note for people that uh, international students in Australia are at extraordinary levels higher than any other place in the in the English or actually any other place in the world. Unbelievable. Exactly. And I mean, I've, I'm you know, a big fan of the Wall Street Journal and I've been reading about some of the um, pressures on the uh, American universities. But actually, a lot of it's got to do with the domestic students not liking online and not being on campus. So there's actually a, a lot less emphasis on uh, on the international students, because, as you say, they're a smaller proportion. Right, right. Now we're going to go to questions in, in just a minute. Uh, first, I'd like to remind everyone, please subscribe to the show. We'd love to have uh, subscribers on, on here. We'd also love you to like the show because if you like it, it's more likely to be shown to other people. Also, forgive me, but I'm going to ask for money. Uh, the Center for Independent Studies has been hit by the downturn, just like everyone else. If you still do have a job like me, while you have it, <laughs> please consider contributing. Just go to the CIS website, that's cis.org.au. Don't forget the AU or you end up at an American immigration uh, website. <laughs> Come to cis.org.au, click the donate button. Even you know $20, $40 makes a difference. I'll tell you, it also makes a difference when I am arguing that we should keep this show on the air. If we're bringing in donations and new members, you know, we'd love to have you as a member. Membership categories start at just $40 for the friendship category. I myself am a member, and I have myself contributed to CIS since this crisis began. I hope you'll join me and you know help keep, help keep things running there at Macquarie Street. Um, Judith, we had a question from Chris. It's just an open question. Uh, what do you think about the Swedish versus Norway comparison, if you'd like to comment on it? Well, I guess that's an example of what I'd call rather um, high-level comparison. So, um, and, and, you know, don't get me wrong, I, I'm, you know, a, a great believer in individual freedoms and the promotion of liberty and, and indeed the promotion of economic freedoms. Um, and so this has been a very difficult time, I think, for people who uh, have that belief system. But um, there clearly is a collective element to public health. Uh, as I said, it's a contagious um uh, virus uh, from which we don't have immunity. So it's a sort of slightly, you know, there's a collective element to the policy dilemma. So I think, you know, too much has been written about Sweden. They have engaged in a partial lockdown, by the way. 
they don't do much testing, so we don't really kind of know about the prevalence of the infection there. And the death rate by Australian standards looks completely unacceptable. Right. You know, I think there have been 2,000 deaths. It has a population half of Australia. Um, and its economy is going to be hit for six too because it's a small open economy and so it, it's not immune. Um, so I, and of course the, the, the experience in the other Nordic countries, Denmark uh, and Norway, for example, has seen much lower death rates. So, um, but again, I think it's really good to have that debate because maybe the Swedish thing tells us a bit about what we might expect when we um, remove some of the lockdowns. Right, right. Let me ask, uh, so Gay and Chris both have questions about interest rates and I'll read Gay's out. Uh, given that interest rates are used as an economic lever, where do interest rates go once they hit zero? Uh, what drivers are next? Okay, so um, of course in Europe and indeed in Sweden, they, they will be moving back to negative interest rates, which is kind of hard for people to understand, I think. Um, I think Australia won't go that way, but we have all that, we've already engaged in uh, the Reserve Bank's already engaged in a period of um, what we call quantitative easing, the buying of bonds and the like. That um, I mean, I was very critical of the Reserve Bank uh, over the past four or five years because wait, you critical? Yeah. Yeah. But you're always so supportive, Judith. <laughs> no, 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 no. no, no, they were pushing interest rates down in the context of something that really wasn't very serious. So what happened was that when the coronavirus struck, they really had very little ammunition in their locker. Um, but I think they're, they're performing a very supportive role at the moment. One of the things that Australia has in its favour is that uh, you know, it's got a very flexible exchange rate. So, you know, as most people know, the exchange rate is depreciated, but that is a really strong form of um, equilibration. So uh, in that sense, I think, I, I kind of feel fairly confident about the Reserve Bank at this point in time, because I think they will behave appropriately uh, to deal with the crisis. Right, thanks for that. John wants to ask you, Judith, how do we address the need to shift supply chains on security grounds and diversify our export markets? That's two questions, I guess. Yeah, look, I think those are really interesting questions because um, what the coronavirus highlighted was the fragility of some of those supply chains um, and the fact that uh, just, uh, uh, it's not just about the dependence of Chinese international students, Salvador, it's actually uh, the dependence on China for some important um, supplies of, for example, um, pharmaceutical products, other medical supplies and the like. So, but I kind of go back to this, that we have to ask ourselves really, why were a lot of those activities moved offshore in the past? And that's why I'd like to go, I'd like the government to think about some of the, the fundamental issues um, which have, I guess, prevented the continuation of uh, those, for example, manufacturing efforts here and how do we get them back. And so really I see them, for example, as, uh, you know, we do approvals really badly in Australia. It all gets sort of gummed up because we've got some, you know, yellow-throated finch somewhere. Um, 
we do industrial relations really badly. So a lot of food processing, for example, has been pushed offshore, which is weird because, you know, we're good at agriculture. Um, we probably do project management quite badly. And we've also um, kind of allowed our skill base to erode. So I'm not talking about, you know, university graduates and gender studies. I'm talking about, you know, boilermakers and welders and technicians. You know, that has been, a, um, you know, a real loss in our skill profile. And, and that, so I think they have to work on all those uh, four factors because you can subsidise the supply chains to come back home. Right. But the better way is to actually create the factors which will, you know, push the supply chains back anyway, you know. So, right. um, and, you know, because I know com companies, uh, big well-known companies, supporters of the CIS, who actually had been thinking of moving more of their supply offshore. Now, I know for a fact that they're now reconsidering that. Okay. But I think unless you have those factors that facilitate onshore manufacturing um, in particular, then, you know, we'll go through that other cycle that people get sick of the subsidies and they'll take the subsidies off and they'll go offshore again. So I think this is a good opportunity to get some of those things right. Right. Let me ask, so we have a comment from Anthony, uh, which wrote that uh, the two lessons he draws is first, always have proper border controls, and second, countermeasures should be as local as possible. But I'd like to go to the question from Simon. Simon's asking, after all of this bailout and the, the job keeper and job seeker subsidies, how do we get the money back? <laughs> Where is the, is it going to be higher taxes? What's going, what's down the road? Yeah, look, I think that's another very good question. Um, look, I think the way to interpret JobKeeper and JobSeeker was that it was effectively the government putting in a sort of very substantial safety net in order to uh, impose the lockdown rules without, you know, I mean, you know, massive sacrifice by the population. So, uh, you know... If you'd asked me last year, Salvatore, you know, would I support a scheme like JobKeeper, which is going to cost $130 billion, I would have told you that you're out of your mind, you know. Um, but I think in, in – and, and don't get me wrong, I think the JobKeeper program uh, has quite a lot of problems, to tell you the truth. But the government has been very clear all along about the temporary nature of it because – we have to provide both the incentives for people to go back to work as well as um, employers to provide the job. So I think it is very important that it's time limited. I think the job seeker, which is essentially the old New Start allowance, that is going to be more problematic in the sense that, you know, there will be unemployed people. Can we go back to the, the, the fairly basic level that New Start was? Um, my guess is maybe not. Um, I thought Tony Abbott had quite an interesting idea, which was to sort of separate the two and deal with what's called, I think, the coronavirus supplement in perhaps a more proactive way. But I can't see it sort of being switched back to that lower level overnight. But the key here is I think the government has had a kind of set of principles Right. which is that the measures needed to be proportionate and temporary. 
because unless they're temporary, then you know the 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 challenge of paying off the debt is substantial. I, I noticed in the UK where they have a equivalent of actually more generous equivalent of JobKeeper, their furlough scheme. They're going to they're trying to cut that back already because the, the fiscal costs are just enormous. Right. But what but what about where's the money going to come from? I mean, are we going to see an extra penny on GST? Are we going to see two cents on the income tax? Uh, or is this just all going to somehow magically go into the reserve bank and ultimately inflation? Uh, I mean, where do you think we're going to get the money? Okay, so there are kind of basically three ideas. One is inflation. We've been really bad at generating inflation in the economy. Of course, the, the the point about inflation would be that it would reduce the real value of the debt. It would be a terrible blow to people with savings, I might add. It's a form of theft, really. Um, but I'm not convinced that uh, inflation is part of, part of the scene. Um, the other thing is, you know, either pay it down in the short term or pay it down in the long term. Now, I, do, I doubt whether the government will want to be increasing taxes in the short term because the trouble with that is that by doing that, you kind of kill off uh, the vigour of the recovery. So I think, you know, this is going to be kicking the can down the road, frankly, and it will be, as happened after the Second World War, it took many, many, many years to pay off the debt accumulated as a result of our war effort. Right. Um, uh, we have Mike watching in Pittsburgh. And he, by the way, he says that Australia is a breath of fresh air. It's a good thing he wasn't here in December. Uh, but uh, Mike from Pittsburgh is saying that uh, at his university, they're leaning towards uh, hybrid operations in the fall. And then for 2021, a full year of online only education. Uh, now, we've already gone online only at the University of Sydney as an emergency measure. Uh, is this going to be the future of education and what does that mean? I mean, we do have a question from Stephen about what does that mean for the students? I mean, will we be able to attract international students to online education and will domestic students want to have online education? Um, well, there's definitely a technical problem with online education provision in China because the, the, the government, or shall I call it the party, are inclined to uh, um, interrupt the reliability of online education for Chinese-based students. So that is, I think, a very big technical issue. Um, look, it, it will vary, but I mean, I think a lot of people, and I've, I've noticed in the, and you know, Salvatore, you know more than this, that the on-campus experience is part and parcel of going to college in America. Right. And uh, if, all that's offered is online provision, then, well, I'm not sure you can charge the same fees that you previously oh, okay. charged. Um, and I'm not sure how that works uh, for courses that involve, you know, pracs in labs and uh, performing arts, uh, fine arts and the like. So I, I think there's a long way to go. I mean, having said that, you know, um, as probably if it's you and I have... Uh, experience, you know, there are some advantages to the online um, life. Um, but at the end of the day, I think the university experience for a lot, and, I, and I'm, I'm not trying to be nostalgic uh, here, but I think it, it, the on-campus experience is very important to people. So I, I think universities will realise that by and large here. 
Right. Now, uh, Stephen did also ask about freedom of speech issues. Uh, there was a lot of debate a few months ago about Chinese students potentially suppressing freedom of speech in Sydney. Do you think that's now gone? Uh, was it an issue to begin with? I think it's going to be interesting. I mean, I, I honestly felt that um, last year was a really low point in us getting really bogged down in some sort of issues that really affected very few um, people. So, you know, that de that debate about, you know, how many genders there are and the rights of trans people and, you know, trans people playing females. You know, I'm thinking, really, you know? Um, I think we were getting a really bogged down uh, the uh, 2050 net zero emissions and, you know. So, I mean, I'm hoping that maybe in this post-COVID world, we all kind of smarten up and focus on what's really important. And what is really important is getting the economy to recover and get people back into jobs. And, you know, maybe, and I, th I kind of think of the universities here, I mean, maybe there will be a, a, a reduction in what we might call the bullshit jobs. You know, I could never figure out what a whole lot of people did at the university. You know, they have funny titles uh, and high salaries, you know, and often the funny titles involve diversity and equity and inclusion. <laughs> but I'm thinking, well, what do these people do apart from go to meetings, you know? Right. So, and But you might see that in the corporate world too, that they focus on what is actually necessary to run the business for the benefit of the shareholders and being, you know, good employers um, and, and allow some of those marginal issues to fall away. Anthony wants to know, what about building up a special fund to meet pandemics in the future? Should we have some kind of compulsory pandemic savings plan for the future? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, it's interesting, you know, because I'm, you know, friendly with some of the cabinet ministers. So a few years ago, there was um, uh, a kind of um, planning process and they had to decide between cybersecurity issues and pandemics. And probably, sadly, for Australia, they ran, well, I guess cybersecurity is a big issue too. Right. Um, so they didn't do the, the pandemic planning. Um, Interestingly, the NHS, which is kind of equivalent to God in the UK, although I'm not quite sure why, um, <laughs> they actually had undertaken some pandemic planning a few years ago, and the and 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 the exercise was a failure. Uh, so, <laughs> but I'm not sure you'd bother to have a standing fund there. But I do think setting out a, what I'd call a manual. Now, think of all, all those years I had on. Uh, company boards. You know, we always had manuals. So, you know, for example, in the event of an, a company being uh, subject to a, a takeover, um, not always friendly, um, you know, there was a manual there to go go by. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, and uh, the lines of accountability, who did what and the like. So I think that sort of thing would be very, very useful in the future. Mind you, I don't think this is going away that quickly because, you know, short of getting a vaccine or effective treatment, we will still have to have um, systems in play as to how to deal with it.
Now, now we're not just on YouTube. We're also on Facebook and other platforms. I think on LinkedIn as well. We have a question coming in from Facebook. Uh, Jamie wants to know if this is an opportunity for a government-wide reset on regulations. And is that politically conceivable? And if so, would it be dangerous? <clears throat> I mean, I'd like to think so. Um, and I've known of instances, you know, one the son of one of our friends who lost his job uh, in wine mer merchandising was able to set up an online site really quickly and all the kind of regulatory burdens of that just fell away. Um, I'm just not completely optimistic about oh, you know, this the crisis will lead to good reform. I think, you know, people will be will be out there defending their patch. Um, the Europeans also, for example, think this is going to be a great opportunity for the Green New Deal. And I'm thinking, golly gosh, you know, that's really the last thing the Europeans need. But there we go. Um, so I, 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 my prediction is that this will be a bun fight. Um, you know, regulations, I think, uh, uh, you know, we've had a deregulation agenda in this country for over a decade, which has actually been associated with more and more complex regulations. So I think, sadly, it would be too optimistic to think that would just melt away. Right. Now, we're going to be wrapping up. So I want to remind everyone there is that event coming up at noon. There's a link in the comment section here in the YouTube chat that you can just click on to register for the noon event with John Mearsheimer and Kishore Mabubani. Uh, also, please do consider donating to CIS. Go to cis.org.au. Just click the red donate button or better yet, the red membership button. Uh, Judith, we have some rapid fire questions because there's so many here and I finally caught up with them. I was struggling before to just scroll through and catch up. So I'm going to ask for some quick answers. Uh, Gay wants to know, will we reach will we reach 12% unemployment? And if so, how would we cope with that? Look, again, uh, uh, um, it's, a, it's a good question. The thing is, it's really hard to measure unemployment at the moment because we have the, the textbook uh, definition that people have to be actively looking for work. So watch this space with hours of work. That will be the best measure of the weakness of the labour market. But hopefully not 12, but 10, I reckon 10%. Okay, Phil wants to know, what's the impediment to getting the long-term unemployed back to work? Well, that's where we try and prevent people becoming long-term un unemployed in the first place. So what the evidence is very clear, economists have a word for it called hysteresis. We've got words for everything, actually. <laughs> um, but really, the key is to make sure people don't stay jobless for long periods of time because then it has such a profound scarring effect on them that they're very hard to get back into the labor force. Okay. Richard wants to know if we have a safe and sustainable recovery, say with a, from a U-shaped recession, could we engineer a change in the discount rate? That's a technical <laughs> question for you, not for me, that's for sure. I think that might be beyond my pay, pay scale. <laughs> Andrew wants to know, will economic activity rise in the capital cities at the expense of the regions? Well, I'm not so sure. I mean, I think one of the issues, and, and this is clear around the world, that high-density living is not, not helpful to pandemic management. So, you know, maybe that those quarter-acre blocks in some of those regional towns look very useful. So I don't know whether that's absolutely obvious. I think we might get... Uh, some uh, 
uh, regional resurgence, and I don't think that would be a bad thing. All right. John uh, agrees with you. He wants to see off the diversity officers and bring back the boilermakers. Now, I'm going to ask you, as an educator myself, I mean, mean, how realistic is that? Has the Australian economy simply changed like other advanced economies in ways that are simply not going to bring back the boilermakers? Well, it goes back to, I think, you know, I I was never a fan of demand-driven enrolment for universities because it was giving young people the completely inappropriate uh, impression that going to the university was necessarily the way to secure uh, a remunerative and fulfilling place in the labour market. Um, So I'd really like to see some reinvigoration of vocational education. And that actually goes back to school counsellors and the school curriculum because you know, those are the kinds of things that, uh, you know, we've actually often had to import. So I think young people, uh, you can work outside, that's good. Pandemic management, that seems to be a good thing. And I think there'll be plenty of jobs in those fields. Right. We uh, have to be wrapping up. I'm going to ask one final question from uh, the audience, and then we're going to call it quits for today. I do have a question. I'm not sure who the person is. The screen name is Dimmy. Uh why do companies move offshore? Does anyone remember Pan Pharmaceuticals, which was destroyed by the TGA? Now, I don't know what the TGA is. <laughs> Maybe you do. Yep. Can, can you comment on this? Therapeutic Goods Administration. Okay. And it was absolutely terrible and really complete bureaucratic bungling. So, yeah, we never want to see that sort of thing again. Um You know, the interesting thing is, uh, Salvatore, that Australia is good at medical research and interestingly enough, very good at virology and immunology, right? Let us actually try and lever that basic skill set. It goes back a long way to Mac Burnett and Howard Florey and the like. Um, And, you know, I don't see why we couldn't actually develop some related industries, including, for example, in pharmaceutical products. Right now, I'm wrapping up now. This is literally my final question. I know that you write this, you know, little column for a niche publication called The Australian, but now you're on YouTube with a global audience. <laughs> and, uh, and so, and so, if you have a message for the world's leaders as to you know how to restart the world's economies, and you know, in, in a few words, what do we do, Judith? What's next? Well, I think confidence effects are really important. So we can't proceed now without appropriate pandemic management. Uh, But, you know, some of my colleagues have talked about um, essentially allowing the economy to adjust within a big jar, I think. So let's not have picking the winners. Let's not have, you know, government centre place. Let's have individuals, individual businesses um, setting the pace. and, uh, you know, it, you know, there are some, I think, points where we might end up in a better space because I think, as I said, we got to some sort of sludge factors last year. So hopefully some of that will go away. All right. Well, thank you very much, Judith, for joining us today. Thank you for everyone who has been watching and feeding in your questions. We really appreciate it. If you have not already subscribed to the YouTube channel, please subscribe. If you have not already become a member of CIS, please do go to cis.org.au and click the membership button. The friendship category starts at just 
$40. Judith, thank you very much. Judith Sloan, columnist for The Australian, for appearing on our show. We really appreciate it. Our producer today was Emily Holmes. Executive producer, Max Hawk-Weaver. Hawk the director of the CIS is Tom Switzer. I'm Salad Herbobonus. Thanks, everyone, for watching, and we will see you next week. Thank you so much, Ari.